Good morning, and uh, welcome to 2019 here at, uh, at Bethel Church, and we are off and running, and I uh, want to just uh, say I love you, and let's have a great year together as a church. I'm welcoming our campuses that are joining us uh, here for our teaching time, and I'm really up here to introduce uh, Family Month and also to introduce uh, who is going to be speaking today on our subject. So, First of all, why, why do a family month? If you know that, if you come here much, you know that the normal sort of course of teaching and ministry here is verse by verse through books of the Bible. We've been in the series in Romans for like a year now. Uh, but for the last several years, we have taken a break in January and we have uh, focused on matters related to the family. Why do we do that? Well, because if you were to ask our pastors, if you were to ask our leaders, if you were to ask our people involved in counseling here and say, what's the number one like rough spot that people have? Like where, where are the challenges for the, for the people of our church? They would say number one, marriage, number two, parenting, number three, relationships within the family. That is where the greatest struggles lie. And so, because of that, we, we just, we believe the Bible has real-life answers for real-life problems. And to take a month and to say, let's just talk about the areas where we struggle the most and see if we can't equip and resource and help our people. Uh, we've, so we've been doing this. We've been doing this for uh, several years now, and these really have been r- very popular months of teaching. And I think that this one will... Uh, will be as well. You know, the irony, of course, is that our families and our family relationships are the greatest opportunity that we have to display the gospel of Jesus. Like, you know, we, we talked about the Peru trip that's leaving this week, and we've got a short-term missions trip, people going to Peru, and that's a great opportunity. We're going to be praying for them. But most of us are not going to be called in a permanent way to some foreign mission field or some place like that. We're called to be faithful in the place that we are, in the, in the spot that we're in. And what does it mean to, to be, you know, missional in the spot that we live in? It certainly includes sharing the, the gospel with our coworker, our, you know, fellow student, our neighbor, and all of that. But did you know that one of the best ways that we have to display the reality of a risen Savior is by the way that we treat each other and the way that our marriages, the culture of our marriage and the culture of our home and all of that, I mean, especially in the world as just we have the deconstruction of God's plan for gender and family and marriage and all these things, more and more just being a faithful gospel Christian couple and family stands out in the darkness of the culture around us. And so what a tremendous opportunity we have, not to mention so much of our personal happiness is bound up in the quality of the relationships within the home. It's in all of our best interest to do this really well. Amen. So, and we all need help with this. Um, and, and notice that, that what I'm saying here is to live out the gospel. It's, we're not living out perfection. The gospel isn't that we're perfect people and, and we need to let people know how they can be perfect just like us. The gospel is that we are sinful people who have found reconciliation with God and with one another through the transforming power of Jesus Christ in our lives. And so this is more a matter of being really good at forgiving and really good at uh, 
bearing with one another and love covering a multitude of sins and applying the gospel in the rough areas that inevitably we have in the home and doing that faithfully over the course of a lifetime. Uh, this, is, this is a Christian family. And we believe that the gospel redeems everything. We believe that Jesus came to redeem and to put back together what sin has broken. And that starts with certainly our vertical relationship with God, but it certainly includes our horizontal relationships, especially the closest ones. And there's nothing closer than our family. And so we are going to spend this month talking about this to remind ourselves, here's God's blueprint for the family. This is how it's supposed to look. And to show how the gospel can restore what sin has broken. And to really be a resource, we want to be a resource here for you in your home, in your real life relationships, to be a resource for these to improve and for these to be healed and to be healthy. And uh, so we're going to be talking about this. We want to help marriages. We want to help parents. We want to help family relationships. So here's what we're doing in 2019. We're calling it family math. Okay, family math, and we're just using uh, these basic uh, math principles and applying them to the family. And so we're talking today about subtraction. We're talking next week about addition. So it's a message on marriage. And if I could just say this, of all the areas that we struggle in or we have struggles in, marriage probably is ground zero for that. And so can I just encourage you, if you are married, if you ever want to be married, uh, come next week. It's a message on marriage, and I think it's going to be very helpful. The next week is division, okay, third Sunday in January, division. And I know none of you have any of this in your families, but some people out there have conflict, some people. And so uh, it's going to be how do, we, how do we handle family conflict, inevitable, inevitable family conflict, conflict. And then finally is multiplication. This is parenting and Christian principles of parenting and what that should look like. And so it's going to be a great month, and we're very, uh, we're very hopeful that God's going to use this to equip and disciple us and, to, and for his will to be done in our families. So today, today is subtraction. You already heard a very powerful testimony here at Crown Point we did uh, from, from Jared, and we just so appreciate he and Rachel and their family, and thank you for sharing incredibly vulnerably with us, your story, and we appreciate that so very much. But if that sounds like something like, you know, if we talk about subtraction and you're like, I can't relate to that, just wait, okay? There is no family that doesn't experience loss. Inevitably, we all die. And families, here we are coming off the holidays, and maybe, maybe 2018 was a year of loss in your family. There was a chair that was empty that has never been empty before at the dinner table on Christmas. So death, but this goes beyond death to other kinds of losses uh, like a prodigal or maybe a family member who has extreme passive aggressive behavior. Okay, they're not dead, but it's like they're dead. You've not talked to them in 10 years and things are broken there. How do we handle this? How do we how do we look at this biblically? This is where we're going today to try to equip us to handle loss. And so today uh, uh, we have the very best person, in my opinion, to speak on this subject on our team. And uh, Pastor Stephen Ganchow is uh, a relatively new pastor here. He came to us, I think, this last summer. 
And uh, Stephen is one of these guys, I'm happy to tell you, the more I get to know him, the more I like him. And the longer he's here, the more I'm glad that we have hired him and, and have brought him here. Uh, Stephen is relatively, like, pastorally maybe on the younger side, but I'm here to tell you he pastors like an old man. <laughs> and I mean that as a compliment. Uh, he is wise beyond his years, and we have seen that already in his, in his brief time here. He's our pastor of counseling. And uh, in just a few months' time, he has, it, right now, if you said, man, I want to go see that guy, I want to talk with him, you've got to wait weeks because he is slammed. People are finding help and answers, and I'm so glad. I, I want our church to be a place where, uh, you know, we're not just ivory tower theologians, like people are getting real help for the real problems of life. We believe the Bible has that, and Stephen and really all our pastors provide biblical counseling, and so uh, he has quickly become very popular and uh, very much in demand, and we're blessed to have him speak on this subject uh, today. He and his wife, Anne, uh, we are blessed to have them, and so let's welcome uh, Pastor Stephen Ganshaw to the platform today. Well, good morning, Bethel Church. Good morning to those of you that are joining us uh, at the other campuses, Cedar Lake and uh, Hobart Portage this morning. It is a genuine privilege for me to have the opportunity to be up here in many, I mean, in all ways, it is a genuine privilege for me to share this pulpit with the likes of Pastor Steve. For those of you that maybe were just joining us from Christmas, Pastor Jared um, at the regional campuses, Pastor Dexter, Dan, and Mark, they are all tremendous, tremendous preachers that we have the opportunity to learn from every week. So I approach what I have the privilege of doing this morning with a tremendous amount of respect because uh, to follow the likes of men like that is a daunting task that is worthy of rising to the occasion, and I strive to do that here this morning. Uh, as Steve had shared, I'm the pastor of counseling. So as we talk this morning, as we open God's word together and look at what it has for us on the subject of family subtraction, my prayer is this. Even if you are not in a season of loss, I want you to leave with something. I want you to leave better prepared. What I, what I want to do is encourage those of you that may be struggling this morning, those of you that are in, in that season of, wow, this, this person is gone and I don't know what life looks like right now. But loss is truly multifaceted, and I want this to be a bit of preventative care. I want you to have the confidence that you can go to the Bible, you can go to God's Word and see, wow, there's truth in it for me right now in this spot, this very difficult place that I'm in. So preventative care is the direction that we will emphasize in many ways this morning so that when loss of any kind comes upon you, you're as ready as you can be. You see, when I started to think about loss, the very first thing that came to mind, the natural thing, is the death of a loved one. That is easily in family subtraction thought, the first thing that should come to mind. But as I gave it just a little bit of consideration, it became very apparent to me very quickly that it is much more dense and complex than that. To illustrate that point, I just want to ask you a question. By show of hands, how many of you are parents? Wow, a lot of you. Remember raising a baby? Remember, remember the little baby who just sat in your arms and looked up at you, and that look represented, I need you, I love you more than anyone else in the entire world. I need you more than anyone else in any facet, in any way. 
Do you remember when that baby became a teenager? <laughs> or when they went off to college? You see, within families, we form identity. And when the seasons of family life change, you lose some of that identity. I have a three-year-old, a one-year-old, and then actually a 20-year-old that's like our daughter, my wife and I do, in Kansas City going to college right now. I, I can assure you, I've seen, seen the stages of parenting. I have mourned the fact that my little children are, are large children now. They can, they can talk back. It's part of, yeah, part of, part of my identity, though, is the parents of an infant. It's just gone, and it's, it's not coming back. But there are other kinds of family subtraction, too. In Luke 15, Jesus talks about the prodigal child. For our, for our purposes this morning, maybe it's a prodigal relative, someone that you know, someone that you love, and they're gone. It is as if they are dead with the level of brokenness that exists in that relationship. Maybe right now, in this exact moment, across four campuses, you're sitting in an aisle with someone. It is as if they aren't even there. And they're your own blood. Family subtraction is infinitely more complicated than we give it credit for. And it is very, very sudden. Here at Crown Point, we heard Jared's story. And Jared had shared it. It came out of nowhere. It can be shaking, and we need to be prepared. So as we go to God's Word this morning, have the frame of reference on your hearts and minds. How can I be prepared? What, what can I do to be best prepared as a Christian for loss of all shapes? And sizes. I am thankful then as we approach the Bible that there is a place in God's Word that encapsulates all of these things in a single story. Very, very complex family subtraction. Death, pride, all manner of other things in a single place. If you have a Bible or you have an iPad or a smartphone, any of those things, go ahead and open your Bible to Genesis 37. And we're going to be in Genesis 37 for just a bit this morning. In Genesis 37, we actually find the story of Joseph. The first thing that might spring to mind as you think about Joseph is Joseph and the coat of many colors. For those of you that watch a little bit of TV or like Broadway, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. That's, you know, we have things when we attach, th we attach things to people in the Bible. We attach things to stories. The coat of many colors is typically Joseph's thing. And that plays a significant hand in what we will talk about here. The story of Joseph is a story of favoritism. It's a story of pride. It's a story of angry, malicious, envious brothers that results in death, or at least what is thought to be death. And from this, a multitude of family subtraction that will teach us a number of things. So the text we're going to talk about is in verse 25, but before we get there, I want, to, I want you to know what's happening prior to verse 25. So in Genesis 37, 1 through 4, we actually engage with Jacob first. It says that it's the lineage of Jacob that we're introduced to. In Genesis 37, though, we actually see the name Israel over and over and over again. It is because in the chapters prior to Genesis 37, God renames Joseph's dad, Jacob, Israel. This is the same Jacob of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of Jacob and Esau. So that's historically where we are in the Bible. This is Jacob's son. Joseph, when we first meet him here, is 17 years old. 17 years old. So he's not, he's not by our cultural standards, quite at adulthood yet. But he's a mature enough young guy to be taken seriously. And verse four, 3 and 4 then tell us that Joseph is daddy's favorite. So much so that he made him this coat of many colors. 
Joseph's brothers do not take kindly to this. In fact, the Bible says they hate him so much that they cannot even speak peaceably to him. They cannot utter a single word that is of any kind of peaceableness. And verses 5 through 11, then as we move along, Joseph has two dreams, two visions of the future. And in these visions, what happens is in one way or another, Joseph's family is bowing before him. As one who is already hated, I can assure you they did not take kindly to knowing that they were bowing before daddy's favorite child. In fact, the Bible tells us in verse 11 that Jacob rebukes his son but kept the saying in mind, meaning Jacob did not entirely dismiss Joseph's visions. Jumping ahead to verses 12 through 17, we find that Jacob, again called Israel, sends Joseph to go check on his brothers. His brothers are out pasturing the flock. So Joseph goes and he checks on them, and the brothers see him coming from a distance. And what they do there at the end of verses 12 through 17 is they literally start to plot to kill him. They hate him so much, they think to themselves, it would be better if he is dead and start to plot that process. In verses 21 through 24, Jacob's, uh, Jacob's son, Reuben, Joseph's brother, thwarts the killing of Joseph. He says instead, no, no, let's put him in this pit. We don't, want, we don't want his blood to be on our hands. But his intention was actually to rescue him later and restore him to his father, the Bible says. And that's exactly what the brothers did. They grabbed Joseph, they stripped the coat of many colors from him, and threw Joseph in a pit. Here we find then that Joseph, uh, Reuben exits the scene. Presumably, he goes to look at the flock. We don't know, but he, presumably he goes to look at the flock. He exits the scene, and the other brothers sit down to eat, which is where we pick up here at verse 25. So look at it with me together. They sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their, car- with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to the brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And he, Jacob, identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned his son for many days. All his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph, the Bible says, to Potiphar in Egypt. A lot of forms of family subtraction right there. You had the literal selling of a human being into slavery. Remember what Judah said, let not his blood be on our hands. 
They knew selling him into slavery was a functional death sentence. There's the loss of a son. Joseph's father literally thought that his son had been torn to pieces. Reuben, he sought to protect Joseph, sought to protect his brother. He failed, and now he's gone, and there's nothing he can do about it except engage in the corporate lie. And that corporate lie caused so much brokenness between these brothers. Bible scholars agree they would have had to look over their shoulder at one another the rest of their lives because they were so broken that they agreed to kill. There was literally a corporate willingness to murder their brother simply because they did not like him. When you think about that in the context of your relationships, certainly they, that would have resulted in this opportunity of constantly looking behind you just to see, boy, am I next? Extreme brokenness as a result of loss. So what do we do with this? As we approach God's word, as we see this overwhelmingly dark story of loss in many ways, all in a single family unit, what kind of application can we derive? What can we learn from it? I want to tackle that in two ways. First, what I'd like to do is give you the big picture context. I want to talk just a little bit about what it is God is trying to accomplish, not just here, but in all of our lives. So we're going to do big picture. And then after we close that component, I want to give you a couple of very real, very active, very prominent preventative care things that you can do when you're in a series of loss, when you're in a season, excuse me, of loss. I want you to leave today as equipped as you can be to endure loss of all shapes and sizes. So, the first big picture family subtraction is this. Family subtraction, whether through the loss of a loved one, change through loss, or loss in a broken relationship like these brothers endured, is a part of God's ultimate plan. I assure you, that was no easier to say than it was to hear. It's not easy to think, wow, God is doing something with this extreme broken loss that I am feeling right now, and yet there are no events in life that occur, good or bad, even the loss of someone we love, that are not a part of what God is trying to do to bring people to salvation as a part of God's big picture story for all of humanity. Our loss, every single event that happens in every one of our lives is a part of what God is trying to do in eternity. There is overwhelming weight and significance to every event. Do not diminish even the difficult ones. Our goal must be to see them in light of what God is ultimately trying to do. And that is what we find that Joseph was capable of doing. So what I want to do now is a bit of a time jump. I want you to see that there was a big picture plan in mind and Joseph knew it. In Genesis 38 through 42, we see some significant change has taken place. Joseph went from slave to servant of Potiphar, from servant of Potiphar to prison. Potiphar's wife had falsely accused Joseph of sexual assault, and for that he was imprisoned. In prison, he interpreted the dreams of a couple of gentlemen that were there, and what that resulted in is one of them ended up being put to death, the other one entered back into Pharaoh's service. And when Pharaoh had a couple of dreams involving um, big, plump cows and then uh, uh, famous, weak, uh, like dying cows that go and eat the plump ones. He was very troubled by this and could not make sense of the dreams. And this gentleman remembered that Joseph could. So they cleaned Joseph up, they summoned him, they brought him before Pharaoh, 
and he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. The interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams, by the way, had a direct relationship to the dreams that Joseph had back in Genesis 37. Because the result of what happened, Joseph interpreting Pharaoh's dreams, is Joseph was put in charge of almost all of Egypt. He was made the governor of Egypt, literally the second in command of the entire nation, which meant that everyone had to bow. That is what his brothers will have had to do when they come before him. And that's what happens. His brothers, because famine had reached Canaan where they lived, ended up having to go to Egypt to get food because Joseph's job was to make sure that they were ready for seven years of famine that were promised as a part of the vision. Egypt was ready. Really, no one else was. So people would come to Egypt and buy food. Joseph's brothers did. They ended up before Joseph. And after a season of testing, which we'll talk about in just a brief moment, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers approximately 22 years later. 22 years, two decades. And this is what Joseph says. Go with me and look at Genesis 45. If you want to flip over there very briefly, if not, we'll have them on the screens as well. It says in verse 5, you sold me here, but God sent me before you. In verse 7, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth. Verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Verse 9, hurry up, go and tell my father and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me the Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. It took over two decades. And what Joseph did, instead of punish his brothers, which they deserved, he revealed he was aware of God's big picture and rooted them firmly within it. You didn't do this. God did. And God did it so that you will live right now. What that means for us, what that means for us, is that there is nothing that happens, no tragic event, no overwhelmingly broken thing that is outside of God's context. God is doing something in you, and he's doing something in me. And you know what? We're not always going to have 22 years in the reveal. We, we are not promised that. But it is encouraging to know, as we look at God's word, there was a plan. And in the midst of that plan, the big picture, God did something else. And this is the second point of big picture application I want us to, well, and before that, let me actually posit something to you. When we are in the midst of extreme brokenness, when we're, when we're confronted with God's big picture plan, the tendency is to cry out and say, why? Why did this happen? What was the point of this? I would submit to you those are the wrong questions to ask. There are right questions we can ask to help us remember our place as Christians in God's plan. Ask questions like these. What are you trying to teach me? How can I grow through this? God, how can I contribute to what you're trying to accomplish? What am I to learn? These are much better questions because they remind us as God's people to stay firmly within a perspective of God's eternal plan. That makes the context of our tragedy a little bit more encouraging. So the second thing then, within God's big plan, there was always something individual that happened. Family subtraction loss of all shapes and sizes not only has a big picture context, but there is also always always 
always individual purpose for your life and for the lives of those involved in this story. Genesis 37 and 34 through 35 tells us that Jacob grieved for many days and he refused the comfort of his family. He said, I will go to my grave mourning my son, which would have meant that Joseph's brothers had a very frequent reminder of their guilt. They would have been consistently aware. And when again we take a 22-year time jump as Joseph's brothers are trying to figure this out and wrestle with that, we find the guilt never really left their sight. In Genesis 42, Joseph again has ascended to the throne. His brothers are in front of them and he's testing them. The testing is essentially a repeat of what they did to them. Or what, yeah, what they did to him. He puts them in a position where they have to sacrifice the life of one of their brothers to see whether or not they are still just as wicked and evil as they were two decades ago. And as the brothers are figuring out what's happening here in Genesis 42, 21, they're conferring, not realizing Joseph can hear them. And they say this, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. It's additional context to Genesis 37. We see Joseph did not go to Egypt without a fight. That is why, they say, this distress has come upon us. Even further after that, when the brothers go back to Jacob, their father, and they start to tell him everything that happened in Egypt and about the governor testing them, Jacob reveals something very clear. He says that he is aware of the guilt that the brothers have in regards to their brother Joseph. He even accuses them in Genesis 42, 36 of being involved in Joseph's death. And the most revealing thing here, and at no, at no time in any of these opportunities where the brothers express their guilt, do they deny it. You see, they, they had changed. They had seen the error of their doing. They had seen we are truly guilty. God didn't just raise Joseph up and put him in a position of prominence after great suffering and loss. He changed the lives of each and every single person in this story. God was doing something big, but also something very individual. And God will do something very individual in your life as well. But you have to be open to God's moving in that way. That's why the big picture theological points are important. We have to remember this is all a part of what God is doing in all of our lives, both corporately and individually. So with the big picture understood then, let me give you a couple of very specific things because again, I want this to act as preventative care. Not all of us in the room right now are in the throes of extreme loss. But I want you to be prepared when a loss of any kind happens. There are some very strategic principles that you can have in mind from God's word to practice. Because there's, there's no magic bullet. I wish I could tell you, do this thing, take this pill, have this conversation, cry a lot and everything will go away and you will feel better. But that is not by any stretch of the imagine the case. And those of us that have endured loss in the room, you know that. So what can we do? How can we be prepared? A couple of ways. First, express your heart appropriately. What does that mean? Express your heart appropriately. Pastor and author Paul David Tripp says, your faith in God should never silence you in the dark hours of grief. Rather, this is when we begin to understand how deep 
rich, and sturdy God's love for us really is. We find in John eleven thirty five, Jesus himself wept for his friend Lazarus who had just died. We serve a God who empathizes with us and understands loss. He exampled for us his thoughts and emotions in the moment of tremendous loss before he did anything about the fact that Lazarus had died. Learning to express ourselves appropriately is a key thing for us to consider because loss of all shapes and sizes is complicated. No one in this room is expected to grieve the same way. There are a couple of ways that are consistent, though. Some of us tend to explode. I have your attention now. You explode. You weaponize your words. It comes out, it comes out, it comes out, it comes out. And that hurts. Others of us, we, we implode. We don't want to talk. We want to get quiet. We want to back up. We don't want to deal with this. We just want it to go away. Neither of those things are particularly helpful. But we find, in fact, in Genesis 37 through 42 that a variety of them did occur. We see Jacob did this. Jacob was very, very honest about his grief, the tremendous loss that he endured. God desires for you and I to be as well. Jacob, in fact, made decisions in light of the fact that Joseph had died. When the testing was taking place and the brothers came back to Jacob and said, hey, we need you to send Benjamin with us to Egypt because Jacob had held Benjamin, Joseph's youngest blood brother, back. Benjamin didn't get to go with them. Jacob said, not going to happen. I'm not sending Benjamin too, which is when he accuses them of being complicit in the death of Joseph. Jacob made decisions in light of the fact that Joseph was gone and he wasn't going to do it again. He was very clearly expressing what he was thinking. We need to be able to do that too. The Bible actually gives us a means and a language to do that. A little while ago here in Crown Point, we heard Jared's story. And Jared had shared after the moment that it had happened and he began to process through it, the only thing he could think was, God, help me. Help me. In the Bible, the language of lament, help me, God, is a part of that. Lament is the means by which God wants us to express our thoughts and emotions to him. Now, in the short time that we have left together, I could not do the subject of lament the justice, not only that it deserves, but I think that we all could use in terms of practical application. One of the amazing things about being here at Bethel Church is there are a number of resources that we have to offer you. One of those is the internet. It's a good thing. If you go to Bethel's website and to our sermon archives, you should look up a sermon that happened on July 22nd of 2018. On that day, at that time, the senior pastor of one of our sister churches, College Park, came and shared an overwhelmingly powerful message from Psalm 77 on lament. He talked about how God wants us to express our emotions. He taught through and gave us scriptural rooting for how it is that God wants us to lament. Three to five minutes is not what you want on that. You want the full treatment. If you need biblical language, that resource is available to you. I encourage you, July 22nd, 2018. If you need God to teach you, that is a place that we have to offer you where you can learn that skill. The second, and this is one for right now, you need to learn how to talk. Communication is important. You see, God did not design humanity to exist in isolation. God designed us to exist in 
community. Preferably in a community with other Christians. We hope that one of the places here at Bethel Church that you find community is in a small group. You heard Pastor Chris up here talk this morning about small groups in the announcement time. We have a tremendous small group system. If you're new to Bethel, I cannot encourage you enough to get plugged into a small group. You will find community very quickly there. We also have other things like Women of the Word. We have Celebrate Recovery on Monday nights. These are places where community gathers for accountability, for love, to talk, to express what is happening inside of you. We need community to do that. That is how God made us. I encourage you to that end to pursue it. Group leaders, I want to challenge you for a brief moment. Cultivate an environment of openness in your groups. Make it so that when people come, they are free to share and your group is prepared to practice Galatians 6-2 and bear their burden. Make it so you're ready. Cultivate an environment of openness. There are a couple of other more formal resources. Pastor Gary Butler here at the church, he teaches a grief workshop. It's designed to encourage and equip you through the season of guilt and encourage you in the season after guilt, loss, and encourage you in the season after loss. If you're thinking, boy, that one might not be, that might not be right for me. I need something a little bit more than that. There's an amazing organization called the Church Initiative, and they've created a program called Grief Share. It's a 12 to 13 week workshop that is designed to help you learn how to talk. It's designed to give you the skills, the components, the ability to be in community and share with other people that are literally going through the exact same kind of family subtraction that you are, the loss of a loved one. They offer them all around our area. I did a quick search of the internet and we have tons of grief share programs here in the area. If, if you are in need of that, I want to encourage you to pursue it. Now, I've said a couple of things to those that are grieving. I've given you a couple of preventative care skills. I want to chat with you very briefly. Just all of us in the room, I think, will be at a place in time where someone is going to just come and talk to you. Have you ever been in a position where someone has come and started talking to you and you're just like, I have no idea what to say right now? So much so, this is so uncomfortable as you're, they're crying, they're sharing in front of you, that you're like, if I could just run... That would be awesome, and I don't run. But if I could run, it's uncomfortable. Let me, give you an, let me give you an idea that I want to encourage you with, and it actually comes from the book of Job. In the book of Job, in Job um, chapter 2, we find that Job's friends had come to speak with him in his anguish. Job had just lost everything. Job had lost everything. His, friend, or his family, his sons, all of his incredible wealth gone. And his friends came and they sat with him in the dust for seven days and seven nights in absolute silence. That was five seconds. Was that uncomfortable? I want to encourage you to practice the ministry of presence. You do not need to have something to say. You do not need something to do. You do not have to help someone feel better. Practice the ministry of presence. Secondly, very briefly, avoid destructive language. You don't want to weaponize your words. When you weaponize your words, it becomes increasingly probable that you will hurt someone. 
that you will push away the very support system that you need. In fact, we see that Reuben does this when they're confronted with Joseph's test before they figure out who he is, before he reveals himself to them. Reuben confronts them. He says, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Two decades that was stirring inside of him and exploded out. Not the most helpful of things. The Bible gives us in Psalm 6 and Psalm 55 a number of ways and means by which we can express ourselves. The psalmist says things like, my soul is troubled, I'm restless, I'm in anguish. We need to use specific words to specifically describe how we're feeling. Use ownership language. Ownership language. What that means is speak what you mean, speak what you're thinking and feeling, and mean what you speak. Don't say something just to release all of the frustration, all of the loss, all of the hurt, and push everyone away. The temporary relief, you might feel better for a moment, but soon you will need that support system, and they're not going to be there. I encourage you, avoid destructive language. Finally, actively pursue resolution. How can you resolve family subtraction? How do you resolve the loss of a loved one? It might mean you accept that they're gone and that they're not coming back. Some of you have endured a loss and you're still hoping and waiting that they walk through the front door and they might not. It might mean a posture of patience while you wait for the prodigal to come home. It may mean forgiveness even forgiving someone that's not here anymore because they've passed away. Forgiveness isn't about them, it's about you. It may be that you need to turn to the person next to you, that person you are estranged from, and not tell them, but ask them, can we talk? Can we try this one more time? This extreme brokenness between us, it, it shouldn't be this way. Can we talk? Bethel Church, you are well-loved, and we want to partner with you. That's why we offer counseling. That's why we have small groups. That's why we have Women of the Word. That's why we have Celebrate Recovery. All of these are opportunities for you to get specialized care in a season of loss. But I want to encourage you to pursue that yourself. Be diligent in pursuing the care that you need. Aggressively pursue it, because loss will come on you suddenly. My prayer for you this morning is that you are encouraged by God's word, that you see God has truth for you in the midst of extreme loss. Amen. And there are very practical things that you can do in light of that.